Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Sophie. Welcome back to our weekly podcast. Hope everybody's doing well and you're learning as we go and you're giving me ideas because I'm here to help you educate and we can do what we need to do to make our kids safe, grow families in nice communities. Last podcast, we talked about brooding and rumination. Mm-mm-mm. It makes you go around in a circle. Anyway, we learned a lot about what is brooding, how it differs from typical worrying, discussed the dangers associated with the cycle you can get yourself caught in. It's almost like a cyclone in your head. We talked about how to get help for it. We talked about the differences and a whole lot more. So please take a listen. All of the podcasts are on my website at www.drsophie.com and on my free phone app download at Dr. Sophie on call. It is free. So take a look. There's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of good information on it. So help yourself. It's all free. This week, we are talking about neuroeconomics. I would love to know what you think and what comes to mind the minute you hear that word. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what it is, what it isn't. We're also going to talk about how humans can be both good and evil. And I'm sure we all know that about ourselves and others, whether we admit it or not. And what determines which way we go and how that is all coming out to play. Because sometimes you feel like you got the best intentions, but you come out like an evil person. And there are clinical applications for oxytocin. We're going to talk about depression to treat that, social anxiety and schizophrenia. And we're all going to be here, so call us back at 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW or 1-855-767-4966. Every caller gets a free signed copy of Side by Side, the revolutionary mother-daughter program for conflict-free communication. And if you don't read the book but you have the book, you can use it as a weapon. (laughs) Beat your mother. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Today we are talking about neuroeconomics, and we have the expert in the world on this topic, Dr. Paul Zak, and he's actually sitting next to me. Hello. Hello, Dr. Uh, Sophie. How are you? I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Tell us about you. We're happy you're here. Me? I'm an economist and a neuroscientist. Well, let me tell you more about you, just in case you didn't know. You are the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and the professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. You also serve as a professor of neurology at Loma Linda University, great place. He has degrees in math, economics from San Diego State University, a PhD in economics from the U of P, which is my favorite town. I'm from Philly. Hey. And postdoc training in neuroimaging from Harvard. I'm not going on with all this. I'm not going to compete with this, but tell me more about you. You're highly, highly credentialed. Let's cut to the chase. I'm a skeptic. What does that mean? I don't believe what people tell me. Why? I think because our brains mostly, as you know, work in an unconscious state. And so if we just ask people, gee, why did you do what you did? You know, they'll say something because we're forcing them to. But is that really the truth? Do they even know why they did what they did? So um, about a dozen years ago, I started measuring brain activity while people made decisions. And that was one of the first um, studies in neuroeconomics. And so why you know there's people sitting out there saying neuroeconomics means money. It's not about the money. Right. It's about what you put value on. And so money is a convenient way to determine what you value on. So let me give you an example of that. So we'll do this task. We're both in an experiment. I get $10. We're doing this by computer, by the way. If we do it face-to-face, everyone's super nice to each other. I get $10, you get zero. And the task is I should offer you some split of my $10. I'll make that offer to you, and you can accept or reject it. And if you reject my offer to you, then we both get zero. Well, I'm pissed because I didn't get it first offer to you or not offer to you. But, yeah, I guess I'll take it because it's better than nothing. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I'm going to take your blood a couple of times during this experiment. Oh. So now I'm really going to torture you. How much do you think 
I should be giving you. I'm More sure you. than half, because you're going to cause pain and suffering. I'm, I'm getting my blood drawn, too. Okay, that's fair, then. So it turns out that in Western countries, offers less than 30% are almost always rejected. So I'm going to give you three bucks out of 10. Yeah. Eh, I'd yeah. really take zero, because you're, right. what, a stingy bastard, right? right? This is not true in other countries, by the way, in small-scale societies, in places where you have subsistence farmers who don't cooperate with each other. Yeah, a buck is better than zero, right? So the, quote, rational decision would be any money's good money. But we're not rational. We're human, right? We're human creatures. And what we found is that if we infuse people's brains with synthetic oxytocin, this uh, chemical that's associated with care and trust and bonding. Is it a natural thing? We yes, have it already. That's right. Our brains make it, but we can experimentally manipulate this directly. Offers are 80% more generous. So okay. all of a sudden, it tells us that we have this deep social nature, right? That oh, our social nature yeah. is, because I'm a skeptic, I don't want to just ask you, hey, do you like the other people? Do you feed homeless? Do you give money to charity? I'd rather tempt you with virtue and vice by putting money in the table and see what your brain does. So in five words, what is neuroeconomics then? It studies brain activity while people make decisions. And so why can't we just infuse everybody with this oxytocin and make the world a better place? Great question. So you know the answer to that, which is the receptors, of course, are variable across individuals. They depend on our developmental history, our genes. And the studies we do, other than the clinical work in which we infuse oxytocin to healthy individuals, it's like a sledgehammer, right? It would be like giving you synthetic testosterone or extra estrogen. Right, right. Right? So what we really want to do is use these clinical interventions to see what the brain does naturally. Okay. So what did you find? So what we find is that besides breast, uh, birth, breastfeeding, and sex. Say that sex, three times really yeah, fast. Yeah, I will, blah, blah, blah. So those are the classic ways we know that women release oxytocin during birth, during breastfeeding, and for males and females during sex. So all three of those activities are way too messy to run in my lab. Ooh. So instead, I we bet. actually use these activities and people can share money with each other. People can show trust. Again, it's not the money. It's what do you care about? Are you going to be generous towards a stranger or keep all the money for yourself? Are you going to be uh, compassionate towards a charity in which you've seen a little child dying of cancer? So in all these situations, we find that positive social stimuli induce the brain to release oxytocin. And the more oxytocin you release, the more compassionate, empathic, sharing, generous you are. Correct? And so what positive experiences do you have people experience to release more oxytocin? So there's a whole variety of them. So should we reveal the, the secret that we talked no. about? So we'll I, wait. what happened when we first met? I gave you a hug. You gave me a hug. So I refused the handshake. I hug everybody. I got the nickname Dr. Love because right. I refused to shake hands with people because we've shown that touch releases oxytocin. So it tells us that touch is a deep part of uh, what it means to be human, that we actually need to connect to others. We need to physically connect to them, not in a gross, grabby, weird yeah, way. inappropriate. Just, it's just yeah. to make you feel safe and accepted exactly and you're right. equal. And that, bingo. So safe is a key word. So what oxytocin does in animals and humans is it gives us a signal of safety or familiarity or sameness. So I say, oh, that's my dear friend Charlie. He's a great guy. Right. So my brain releases oxytocin. I let you approach, and now we can affiliate. And this is, I think, one of the triumphs of the human species is that we actually can be around, stand to be around, tolerate to be around, and often like to be around complete strangers. Why, though? Why? Because we have a larger mass of oxytocin receptors in the front of our brain that makes it feel good to affiliate. So even our closest genetic relatives, chimpanzees, you see another chimp from a different troop, and what happens? There's a murder. Exactly. Right? They kill this chimp. Right. But we actually get on airplanes. We go to big cities. We live in L.A., New York, Singapore, whatever it is. And it's fun to be around other humans. And so the only way we can live around the other humans is if we have something in our heads that says, Charlie's safe, 
Bob, clearly a sketchy guy, or Doug, the engineer, who's off, st off uh, the microphone. Sketchy guy, I don't want to be around him, so I have to be, be able to determine roughly who I want to be around and who I don't want to be around. So does that explain somewhat how people want to meet new people? They don't, you'll hear kids are really good outside of their home, or they're good with everybody but their parents, or you see your kid and you can't believe that they're doing the kind of work that they do. They go out and they want to n get to know people. Why is it easier to get to know people than to deal with the stuff that they deal with at home or people they know? That's right. So, again, the brain is a very expensive organ to run, and so we have habits that save our energy. And so once we've set down pathways with our family members, our loved ones, then we don't release oxytocin. We actually use at our all, memories. At or we don't? You know, it's hard to say. We're extrapolating now from animal work. But we certainly release less oxytocin over time when we see that loved one because we know that they're safe. We've already set down those memories. And therefore, when we meet new people, we have this exciting, interesting response. Right. Like first date. It's titillating. It's titillating. It's right. exciting. And the brain literally gives you some reward feedback for affiliating with new people. So the same reward pathways that are activated when people take cocaine or methamphetamine get a little kick that says, hmm, meeting new people, kind of good for yeah, you. It's a good Go drug. It. It's a good yeah. drug. Okay, so the release of oxy is really touch-related. What else? Touch-related. Uh, we found a variety of rituals do this. For example, sports teams release oxytocin during warm-ups. Uh, people in uh, religious services release oxytocin. Uh, summer before last, I was in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, and I took blood before and after 20 indigenous uh, rainforest dwellers did a, did a tribal dance that wow. they've done, you know, where their ancestors have done for hundreds or thousands of years. No electricity, no running water. These guys have never seen a doctor or dentist in their lives. And they let me take their blood twice before they did yeah. this dance and after. Well, they trust you. They did trust me. I and it uh, didn't hurt anybody too much. And what do we find? We find that even these indigenous peoples release oxytocin during this ritual. So now reverse engineer the problem. Why do we have these rituals? Oh, they make us feel closer to the people around us. They invest in those relationships. They invest ourselves in community. So we need to be members of community. So tell me, if they're getting used to these people and they do the rituals, because the rituals they do over and over again, doesn't that make them safer and less oxy is released or no? Uh, it could be, but certainly reinforces those pathways in the brain, right? Okay. So touch, rituals? Singing, dancing. We studied uh, an experiment at the South Pasadena Women's Club, which has uh, folk dances on the weekends. We took blood from people dancing before and after. They released oxytocin. Trusting people with your money. Um, our most effective oxytocin releaser, which we've actually run a lot of uh, patients, including psychopaths, criminal psychopaths, is a 100-second video of a boy who's two years old, has terminal brain cancer, and his father talking to the camera, telling the listeners, the viewers, how it feels to know that his son, while looking healthy and playing happily, will die in a couple months of, of uh, brain cancer. I mean, people cry when they watch this. So this is a very effective releaser of, of oxytocin, average 47% increase, and people will donate their whole earnings right to the childhood cancer right. charity. So why do we cry at movies? We can't help it. We right, get sucked into right. that human story, right? We know it's fake, but we can't shut it off. So do you think there are businesses that play then on people's sympathy to release oxytocin? They certainly do. Why Ooh. are there puppies in toilet paper commercials? Oy. So who are the best oxytocin releasers? Yeah. Puppies, babies. Babies die if we don't care for them, so they got to get the parents to release oxytocin. That's why they're so cute with those big eyes yeah. and that nice new baby smell. They ache your heart. They do, or they die. All right. Let's take an email, and then we'll come back. Sure. Kirby from Seattle is asking us, are there particular times when humans are irrational? If so, why? Am I guessing love might be one of those situations? <laughs> That's a great question. So 
I don't use the word rational because there's no neurologic definition right. for this. Is there even such a word? <laughs> I don't know. There's a word, but I think it's misuse. So, yeah, um, I do too. I think we are driven by our cognition and our emotion, and some of those, one of those things dominates us sometimes, and so some our head or our heart. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously they're integrated, but when you're newly in love, uh, these brain chemicals like you're dopamine. You're titillated again. You are titillated, but you're titillated to an extreme level, like right. being on a drug. You're right. obsessive. You can't stop right. thinking about this person. Right. And so are you the best? Is that the best time to make a decision on what stocks to buy? Probably not. Um, on the other hand, if uh, your company and my company are going to merge, you're going to spend three months doing due diligence to find out how much I should pay you for your company. You know, is there an emotional component? Yeah, mm. maybe, but still. It's not stirring you up. It's much more uh, cognitive. Ah, uh, got it. Okay. So we're both. Got it. All right, let's take a caller. Hey, who's this? Hi, this is Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, Colin. You're on with Dr. Sophie and Dr. Zach. What's your question? Um, I just had a question. I have a coworker um, I've been working with for almost a year now, and we've become pretty good friends, but um, it can be really kind of hot and cold. I'm trying to get sort of a read on it. Um, you know, it can be really nice, really outgoing, really fun at certain times, and then other times just doesn't want to have anything to do with you. It can be just really mean and almost nasty. Um, I know that our upbringing, uh, you know, has a lot to do with, you know, how we're conditioned to act and, and treat people. Um, is there like a part of the brain or there have been studies done that there's something in the brain that can kind of outweigh our upbringing in determining like how we act toward other people? Fabulous question. So this is Dr. Zach. So it turns out that there are a variety of ways to inhibit the release of oxytocin. Is your friend male or female? Male. Male. Okay, so there's two major inhibitors for oxytocin, which motivates positive social behaviors. I call it the moral molecule. Oh, I might have written a book about that title. Yeah, you might have. <laughs> we'll talk about so, that. Okay, so why would uh, nature give us these mechanisms to inhibit reaching out to others, being a good friend? Um, we can go into that in a second, but the mechanisms are fascinating. One is high levels of testosterone. So when you're competing, when you're focused on the goal, when you're really um, challenged at work, then it's going to be more about you, you getting through this situation, unless you can help me get through this situation. So that's one, is high levels of, of testosterone. So in experiments where we give men synthetic testosterone, they become more selfish and more entitled. That is, they offer less to others and demand more from others, compared to themselves on placebo. So could be that he's having a big challenge. He uh, had a big fight with his girlfriend, whatever. The second big inhibitor for oxytocin release is high levels of stress. And we all know this, right? When you're stressed out, you're not your best self, you're not kind, you're a grump, then you have to go apologize to your loved one or your colleagues at work and say, hey, I was such a jerk yesterday, my dog died, I got in a car accident, whatever it is. And then people usually understand that. So it'd be nice to know, you know what is going on in your friend's life in which episodically he's actually not able to connect. Um, having said that, I, it, it's very difficult to spend your life studying neuroscience and not have a lot of tolerance for how our brain is awash in these chemicals we're not aware of, and we can't expect everyone around us to behave like we behave or right. behave perfectly all the Absolutely. time. It's all right. Yep. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. you very much for calling in. Thank you. Take care. All right. Should we do a voicemail real quick? Sure. Okay. Let's do a voicemail. Dr. Sophie, this is Jeremy. heard about the subject of the podcast and uh, wanted to call in because find it just extremely fascinating and uh, kind of beginning with my own decision-making, um, kind of thinking back on, on what the difference is when 
I make pretty quick, rash decisions, uh, kind of intermediate decisions, and then when I dwell on, you know, potential decisions over a period of days or weeks. Um, and I also find it interesting because I have a good friend who seemingly makes, you know, pretty quick decisions um, and seems to have no self-control when he makes, you know, simple decisions and pretty uh, kind of serious decisions. So I always, I'm, I'm just very interested in kind of the differences between for instance, my, my decision-making and, and his decision-making and kind of where this field will be going um, in the future and uh, kind of what potential societal impact the, the research and the, the findings currently will have. Um, thanks a lot. Interesting. You take that one. I'll take that one. So we have found that brain activity, while people make decisions, does associate with people's personality styles as people who tend to be more thoughtful, more in their heads, tend to actually take more time the way they make decisions. They tend to utilize um, a larger area of brain activity uh, during some of those deliberative decisions. Where you see other people who are much more impulsive, who uh, tend to have less uh, activity um, in brain imaging studies in the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. They're working on this kind of gut instinct. And sometimes those decisions are wonderful and good. And, and sometimes they're not. And sometimes they're not. Um, and so I think there's no right and wrong answer here, but um, how we make decisions can be changed. So we are doing some work funded by your tax revenue for the U.S. military that is looking at ways to increase what's called fluid intelligence, the ability to solve problems, ability to develop your memory. And these different cognitive styles that people have um, uh, affect the way these kind of brain training uh, measures work. So what you're saying is the research that you're doing is really looking at the ways people think and make decisions, and are there ways to enhance that? Through training or through them taking something or what? Mostly through training. So we really try to make our research relevant to people's daily lives. The goal of our lab is to help people, organizations, and societies flourish. And when we do that is actually understanding that differences are okay. And we see a lot of times in organizations that these different cognitive styles are very effective to improve decision-making as a team as opposed to individuals. Got it. That's interesting stuff. All right. So where are you at? Like, what would you say is the most compelling part of your research thus far? I think it's the good and evil question. I think of this as the longest debate humans have had since we've been having debates as humans. Yes. Which is, what's our human nature, good or evil? As you said in your intro to the show, of course, the answer is both for most of us. Right. So where's the switch? Yeah. What, what, what turns Dr. Sophie from sweet, loving, kind, wonderful human being to, to crazy man. occasionally, I've heard, crazy guy <laughs> driving on the freeway? Not often. <laughs> Not Don't often, talk of course. To that guy. <laughs> so we Where found, is that switch? Yeah, so oxytocin seems to be a big, fat, missing target that humans really hadn't thought much about until we started doing these studies about 10 years ago that motivates us to see others as self. So it kind of melts that self-other divide, and all of a sudden... This person who seemed different from me doesn't seem so different once my brain has made oxytocin. So again, I like kind of reverse engineering these problems. If that's the case, how can I design environments or rituals or interactions in which my brains will release oxytocin and then all of a sudden I'm connecting to other people, I'm building relationships, I'm cooperating, I'm feeling connected, loved. I should say a couple punchlines here which are very interesting. One is uh, there's good evidence in animals and a little bit of evidence in humans that we can get better releasing oxytocin, as we can become better connectors 
even for introverts like me, yes. you can actually be better at this if you kind of force yourself to connect to people, focus on emotions, build empathy. You can actually get better at releasing oxytocin. And indeed, people who are more empathic via their personality traits do release more oxytocin and connect better to people around them. Is that going outside your comfort zone? Maybe? Yeah, I think it's good to push yourself. Um, the second part is uh, really developing the sense of kind of tolerance, as I said earlier, that people are going to be different. And that's okay. I don't expect 100% perfection from my spouse. She's not always going to be the nicest to me. Occasionally, she has bad days. My children will have bad days. And sort of developing this sense of tolerance that it's not all about me. It's really about connecting with other people. And punchline for that is we find that people who release the most oxytocin experiments are more satisfied with their lives because they have better relationships of all types, romantic, uh, professional, friendships, closer to family. And how do you tell people to increase their tolerance? You know, I think it's this uh, reflection. So it's just having this cognitive reappraisement where my initial response might be, oh, you son of a bitch, you know, I'm going to blah, blah, as opposed to, you know what, take a breath, calm it down. That's my first reaction is to be defensive or be aggressive and then realize this person may be having a bad day or this person may be mentally unstable or this person, you know, I want to I want to try to move myself beyond that. So we looked at things like mindfulness meditation, which really helps the sense of developing the frontal cortex so that I'm a little more in control of my emotions. I'm a little more thoughtful about what I'm doing. Got it. Well, I want to do an email and then I want to ask you another question. Sure. Morgan from College Park is asking, what is normal human nature? Is there such a thing? And by this I mean, are we hardwired to be a certain way and anyone who thinks acts differently has a chemical imbalance of sorts? No. Okay, tell me more. Uh, there's no hard wiring, first of all. No. Um, it's all soft wiring, right? So it's all genes interacting with experience, interacting with current life events. Um, but that becomes the hard wire then? I mean, that gives you biases, certainly, right? So then you set in heuristics or biases or habits in which you are predisposed to behave in a certain way for a given environment. Um, but I think there's no normal, and that's my conclusion. And is there a, and that's really the question I was going to ask you before this email, is there an age that's a critical point in time for a newborn or a child or somebody that has experiential input that will orchestrate this one way or the other? That's the key neuroscience and, question. And Fabulous. What would we tell, and what would we tell parents what would we tell to parents? do? And it's really, it looks like it's under eight or nine years old. So after that window, it gets harder to actually change the brain. The brain becomes less plastic. So what should you do with your kids? Feed them a love, give them a lot of love, right? And so it turns out in studies that we've done with sexually abused women, in studies of animals, if you're not giving enough nurturing when you're young, young means under eight or nine years old, then you actually don't develop the ability to nurture and connect to others. That is, the receptors for oxytocin are inhibited, they don't develop as, as strongly, you have fewer receptors, and therefore you're just not getting the good feeling that most of us get when we interact positively with people, we're in a new place. Yeah. And so getting lots of love is good. And um, I think, you know, do I punish my kids? Sure, when they do something wrong, it's a, it's a life lesson. They've got to learn that these things, some things are not right to do. But uh, I don't think you can overlove kids. You may disagree. No, I get it, but I think those are critical time periods. And I, you know, a lot of us deal with children who are in tough situations, the, the foster care system, that kind of abuse, neglect situations. They impact the wiring and the experiential impact on a brain. Do you agree? Absolutely. And so what do you do? I mean, do you, how do you get a child past some of that stuff? You just mm -hmm. kind of redo it with better experiences or when you're eight or nine, you're done? That's right. No, I think not, you know, this, this 
The remodeling varies a lot. So let me, let me give you the data. So in our studies of sexually abused women, actually done at Loma Linda University Medical Center, we found about half those don't release oxytocin when they get a positive social interaction. So for half of those individuals, uh, they just don't have the ability to connect. They have uh, a lot of clinical depression. Many were borderlines in very difficult cases. In fact, she, one woman between waves of our study actually committed suicide. Uh, the story's in the book. Very, very sad case. She was 21 or 22 years old. Um, so repeated sexual abuse, very bad. Abandonment, very bad. Having said that, the other half were resilient. And, yeah. and the resilience did not depend on the degree or extent of their abuse. Hmm, that's seems interesting. to derive from genetic uh, predisposition. Factors, yes, that gave them protection against this abuse. And so it's very hard to say that your life history and my life history are comparable because our genes are different, our, our, the way we reacted, our social support was different. So the, the genetic input we get from our DNA is pretty significant and determines a lot. Absolutely. And so maybe some people have thicker skin to deal with abuse or neglect or rebound from it than others. But on a tolerance level, I don't want to say that someone who's had I mean, all abuse is bad abuse, but having, right. you know, less abuse than others and doesn't cope with it well is weak or, no, this is the case when you need therapy, you need pharmacologic right. uh, support. And so I think all these things are part of the variation of being human. And so the key is to really just address these things. Absolutely. And have great starts for kids. And then really focus on the love. And so uh, in, in my children, who luckily are, uh, you know, psychologically healthy, as far as I can tell. Uh, let me talk I, to them. I started thinking, yeah, I started thinking about the timeout that many parents do. Right. So what's the timeout say? It says, you're, you're misbehaving. We don't want to be around you. We're going to isolate you. This is like putting prisoners in solitary confinement. So that's not neurologically consistent with the way our connection system works using oxytocin. Yeah. So I invented the time in, apparently other people have done this too, I found out, oh, which they... is uh, when, you, when you're having a bad day, you spend a minute in my lap, hold, me holding you for every minute as old as you are. Right. So the nice thing is my 10 year old, very happy to do this, sit in my lap, it calms her, she gets a hug, she just sit there. And my 14 year old is scared to death, I'll do it when her friends are over. Right. So it works both ways. But during that time, they're probably releasing some oxy. Oxytocin, and they're hearing how to do things differently from you. And the key is oxytocin, not even hearing things, just oxytocin is an anxiolytic. So it just reduces the stress response. They're getting physical touch. They're getting eye contact. I look, I care about you. You're having a bad day. I care about you. Let's just let this thing ride out. And that will throw people off, just oh. like the hug throws people off. Uh, it does. Were you thrown off? Yeah. So I'm just flooded with oxy. So, yeah, I get it. I mean, it, it's almost thinking in the opposite way, but you're it getting is. the same outcome with a positive strength. Right. Okay. Let's do another voicemail. Hi. Uh, my name is Rick. Uh, I'm a graduate student in California. I have a question. So, uh, as a grad student, we, um, we try to publish a lot of our work and um, publish manuscripts in different journals. And I've noticed that um, if I submit a, a, a manuscript um, and it gets rejected, uh, I really feel like down and out for, I feel like, weeks. Um, and it really affects my ability to be able to continue to work. Whereas um, if a paper gets accepted, uh, it's great. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy. Um, but it feels like uh, the happiness relative to the despair I would feel if a paper didn't get in is just not as, as great. And um, I, I was wondering uh, uh, why that was and, and, and how, how I could go about uh, maybe changing that so it's not like that so often. Uh, thanks again. Uh, goodbye. That's such a great question because I'm sure all of us can attest to this, whether it's over a paper at school or it's being rejected or not feeling something, and then all of a sudden you're plummeting before you know it. What it, is that about? It is. I should say for the caller, 
20 years out from my PhD, I still feel rejected when yeah. some journal doesn't accept my paper, right. so it never ends. But what is that um, about chemically? Right. So it's the same reason why there are twice as many adjectives for bad things as there are for good things. Ah. So evolutionarily, it's protective to focus on the negative aspects of things and less on the, the positive aspects. So a Nobel Prize winner in economics, a psychologist, Daniel Kahneman, um, called this loss aversion. So we actually feel losses about twice as strongly as we do um, happiness from gains, from because. things that are positive, because it's protective. And so how do we work against that? Yeah. How, and do you want to work against that? Well, that's true. In some situations, you don't. Actually, you do want to be kind of loss-averse or risk-averse, right? You don't yeah. want to be doing crazy stuff yeah, all the time. Yeah, you take your eye off the ball. That's right. So actually, use these as feedback mechanisms. One of the areas in the brain that we found is quite active when you get rejected is an area called the interior insula, which is also associated with things like nausea and feeling disgust and feeling... Dark like, and... Yeah, ur. so when you smell vomit or feces, right. that's, that's the, that's the mm. activation. Go, oh, get me out of here. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. And so how do you, you know, train yourself against not having that response? Again, it's reflection. It's going, you know what? Not me. This paper is not me or this disappointment doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It's a small part just, of me. Yeah, it's just meaning I'm having a bad day today. And so right. that's okay. I'm going to reappraise. So, uh, again, mindfulness training... Um, be able to step away, take a break, take a walk, building some perspective, and then draw on your social support system. So for the graduate student, talk to your other graduate student friends. They've all been rejected. Talk to your faculty members. Yep. So whatever you're doing, build that social support system. Don't be afraid to reach out. And look at your bigger picture, bigger for context. Sure. For sure. Because it's scary to get that rejection, and all of a sudden you're in this dark space by yourself, and you think you're the only one. Everybody else got 100 on that That's test, right. and you didn't get accepted. Right. So really just changing that kind of mind frame. And is that practice only? And then so. mindfulness kinds of trainings and yoga and all that kind of stuff, or no? Yeah, update. I mean, some people are better at it than others because of cognitive styles. But I think it's just saying, you know, it's, it's okay. Doesn't doesn't mean my life's over. And the ability to do that you know, varies much across people, as you know. Okay. So tell me a couple things about you first. Are there experiments that you would really just say have made you really happy, the outcome, and what are they? I mean... You know, highlights of those kinds of parts of your career that what keep a, you going. What a nice question to yes. ask. Um, I'm a nice guy. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> it's all the oxytocin. That's right. I think, you know, what we're trying to do is, um, although doing neuroscience experiments, reflect very clearly how that affects individuals' lives and society's outcomes. And so the early work we did on trust, showing that trust, trusting someone with your money induces their brain to release oxytocin and that causes them to reciprocate tells us a lot about how to organize societies, why we have very decentralized societies, why we don't have Big Brother watching us at all times, because we're essentially watching each other. And this scales right up to societies. So high-trust societies like Norway, Sweden, Denmark are also highly prosperous, but also highly happy because they have these very rich set of connections. And so even economic happiness, prosperity, depends on having social interactions where we can start a business, create a jobs, you know, whatever it is. Okay, so on that note then, do you think that we're doing a good job or not a good job here? Because everywhere you go, there's a camera on you, whether you're at the grocery store, you're at the traffic light. I mean, why do we have to be watched so much? Is that a good thing, not a good thing? If we're watched so much, do we then start to feel good because we're not going to be precluded to do bad things? Yeah, there's some evidence that the more you watch, the more you're... you're you feel uh, kind of uh, disrespected and you sort of motivate the people you're going to watch me all the time I'm just going to cheat so for example studies of employees who they're logging every keystroke they do to make sure they're not looking at porn or something yeah. um, you know I think if you're at work for eight hours and you need to shop for 20 minutes at Amazon or uh, Zappos wherever you're shopping 
I don't know. I'm okay with that. So you think not watching is probably better and allowing people to be trusted? It's be, uh, so it's trust but verify, right? So a little watching is good. Just It turns out experimentally just a little bit of threat of punishment is fine to actually keep people, most people, in the straight and narrow. For criminals, it's not going to matter one way or another. But for 95% of us, we have this intact care, connection, moral system that says, look, I don't want to be ostracized by the other humans. That's not adaptive for me as a social creature. And therefore, I'm going to kind of follow the lead. If everybody's uh, playing nice, more or less, I'm going to play nice. Unless I'm under, again, high levels of stress, high levels of testosterone, right. bad genes, bad environment. Then it's done. Yeah, well, all bets are off. Right? Bet Who knows what's going to happen? And tell me one last thing. Oxytocin and pain tolerance, is there a connection? We have oh, Henry question. from Chicago is asking us that. Henry, deep neuroscience question. So the original evidence for this was in women giving birth, which is a high oxytocin event, in which women were partially amnesic. They didn't remember all the details of that. It's kind of nice. And also felt less uh, pain relief, uh, less pain response yeah. uh, when oxytocin levels were higher. And we've actually found this experimentally that oxytocin does tend to reduce pain responses. And so... Not only does it make us feel good to play with others, it makes us potentially feel healthier as our pain levels are lower. And we actually did uh, publish work just six months ago showing that oxytocin release improves the immune system as well. Very nice. So before I let you go, tell me a little bit about your where you're currently working, like what you're on, what you're focusing on in your lab, and then I want to hear about your book and where I can get that book. Would love to tell you about that. So. Uh, we're doing a lot of work now on how to organize high-performance organizations, how to design people-centric organizations in which people are empowered, they're trusted, they have a great sense of purpose and mission, and uh, this is very exciting work. All Good. through Oxy. Well, so I'm using all the neuroscience of human connection. So basically we want to blow up the old way, which is you walk into business and uh, you check your humanity to the door and you become an automaton. Right. You're a robot. Um, that's actually not a very effective way to motivate humans, particularly knowledge workers who can just walk out and get a job somewhere else. So um, what we find is that the, in these high-trust uh, organizations, you see much higher levels of performance and happiness by the individuals there and also higher profits. So there's a big win-win space. So uh, that's uh, really fun. The other work we're doing – go ahead. But that takes a lot of trust on the employer or the supervisor or whatever to be able to kind of – step past an employee's misperformance or whatever and say, you know what, I know you have strengths in there, bring them forward, I'm trusting you, correct? And it's really coaching, is moving that supervisor right. from being a boss who's telling you what to do to actually empowering you to be successful. And if I'm a leader, my job is to make you successful, give you the tools, right. give you the training, give you the motivation, and give you the feedback. So things like praise are very important. You reach a goal, let's go celebrate. That's fabulous. Absolutely. So then you're doing this in your lab and you're measuring things? or how We you are. We're it? taking blood. We've developed a number of uh, survey tools in which we can measure the trust in an organization. And That's um, so cool. Yeah, it's very fun. The other really fun area, if I can just say it, is yeah. uh, we're doing a work funded by your tax dollars uh, for the military and helping them craft very effective messages. So it turns out about 85% of Pakistanis in a recent survey view the U.S. government as their enemy, even though on paper we are allies. And so we count on, you know, Pakistani citizens to show us where the bad guys are, root out al-Qaeda. And so we're doing work on how you design effective narratives. So how do I get you to lose weight? How do I get you to stop smoking? How do I get you to show me where the bad guys are? Yeah. And it turns out there are really key uh, elements of that, partially using oxytocin and using some other neurochemicals as well in which we can build algorithms to actually sort of test whether these messages are, are effective. So it gets back to what I said earlier about crying at movies. 
Why do stories transport us into right. other people's worlds and minds? Why is it so compelling to hear a story? Why do we remember stories so well? And so making these narratives is something that they'll write or something that they will feel after they read something, or is it something they're taking? So we're really, oh, no, not something they're taking. Um, I always say, uh, Charlie, hugs, not drugs. Oh, so, good. Um, it's really uh, looking at how we affect behavior change from the level of the brain. Got it. So how do we do that? So we do that by engagement. So I want to, first of all, capture your attention. That's the first part. Um, if you look at a Coors Beer ad with our girls in bikinis, you'll watch that. I don't know if you're right. going to buy Coors or not. Right. Um, so attention is the first part. If I don't have your attention, nothing's going to happen. But right. the second is having you see yourself in these characters. So building rich characters in a 30-second, 60-second commercial, in a flyer, in an online video. That's so interesting. So once you can see yourself there, you have what narratologists call transportation. You transport yourself into these characters' world. And if that character decides to quit smoking, you may be more likely to quit smoking if we release oxytocin. That tells us about the physical effects of right. transportation. Right. Oh, So this is why, you know, when you watch the James Bond movie and James Bond is bouncing in the edge of building, your palms sweat, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so we're looking at the positive side of that. If that character is doing something that you think you want to do and you can transport yourself into their, the, that person's world, you're likely to do that. So thing. vicariously living. Absolutely, and then take it from vicarious to actual living. That's so great. That's yeah. good. And your life is dedicated to this? Absolutely. Got a 25-person lab and um, on the nice. road uh, more weeks than I care to tell What you. made you want to do this? You know, it would be nice if there was a real clear answer. Like, I had a mission in my life. Right, right. Basically, I fell into it ass backwards, you know, like most things in life. Uh, but once I found that, oh, here's a niche in which I can use my skepticism about what people are doing and then measure their brain activity and even manipulate that brain activity, there's so many good questions you can ask on this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so many things you can do that are not pharmacologic. Exactly for right. For life. Even though there are some people who need the pharmacological Absolutely. help. Um, and, you know, that's not a tiny set of right. population. But on the other hand, if you can train yourself to actually change your brain chemistry right. and change your behavior right. and improve your life, right. man, how can I not get down with that? That's great. And I think, it, you know, integrating it into early parenting is huge because it really changes society. Yeah. Thank you for your hard work. Tell us about that book. The book is The Moral Molecule. The Moral Molecule. Uh, the subtitle is The Source of Love and Prosperity, something or two things all of us want. Available at Amazon. There's lots of free stuff, a free app, and uh, tests you can take at moralmolecule.com. And um, it's been uh, hit around the world. Uh, just came out the last week in Japan and Romania. Very nice. It's in Spain. It, the Spanish edition is called The Happiness Molecule, which I like a lot. That is neat. Yeah. Because so that's really what it is. It really is what it is. So it's really about connection and it's a deep part of our evolutionary history and really explaining not only your own behavior, but, you know, sometimes what looks like the wackos around you. Like, why is my spouse sometimes just flip out? So it gives you a new lens to understand the world and design your world and your environment for That's happiness. so cool. Good for you. Thank you. Dr. Paul Zak, great work you're doing. Really, it is. And you're helping the world. You're helping parenting. MoralMolecule.com. Free stuff. Tests we can take. Little screeners. But buy that book. It's... Amazon? Amazon. We ordered online. And uh, I just think that just being around somebody like you, I've released a lot more oxytocin. So there's, it's got to be somebody who has experienced that in life themselves and knows how to access it like you to be able to translate that into your research and for the world to get to know. So what better person than you? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. That was Dr. Paul Zak. He was our expert today talking about oxy. The drug we l release in our brain, the neurochemical that makes us feel happy and safe.
couple things I want you to learn from today. Uh, number one is what is the neuroeconomics of our brain? And we've got to understand that it is, as Dr. Zach explained to us, the studies that reveal brain activity as we make decisions is the basic way to say it. And so looking at that on a deeper level, what does that mean? Well, our brains release certain chemicals that make us feel good or not feel good. And one of the biggest ones that he talked about today and I think is so important for all of us is oxytocin. And that's released when we feel safe, basically. And, and when he said safe, he meant emotionally safe and I'm sure physically safe. But the more we feel the barrier of anxiety or fear or whatever it is that we feel when somebody's coming toward us or new to us, the less we feel that, the more engaged we are, the more safe we feel, the more oxytocin that's released. And that is the ritual that he's saying is what we need to do to feel good about things and to be able to be engaged and more happy. And so the things that release more oxy in our brain, he tells us, are touching rituals. Like when I saw him, he I went to shake his hand. I just met him, and he gave me a hug. And that just breaks a lot of barriers down. So touching rituals, he says, things like sports teams and religious experiences and singing and dancing. And a big one is trusting others with your money. So finding the good sides of those kinds of experiences release more oxytocin in our brain, which then helps us feel better. The third thing that I really want you to know is that as we get more familiar with people and the, maybe somebody we've released a lot of oxytocin in the beginning with, maybe a new love or that kind of great stuff that's titillating, over time we release probably less, but that's not a bad thing because I thought it was. It really means that we've become ingrained and safe with that person and we just kind of ritualize and ingrain those behaviors so we feel consistently safe with that person and we have a consistently good relationship with that person. So. The more oxy that's released in the beginning and the more we kind of go over and repeat that behavior with that person, the more solid and more stable that relationship is. Number four, oxytocin. We need to release it. The more we release it, the more motivated we feel, the more we feel like we're with one with others and that we're able to feel less fearful of them and then we can continue to connect with them. We also need to be able to come out of our comfort zones and the way that we do that is doing things that we typically wouldn't do, like hugging people or greeting people in a way that's different. The more we do that, the lower the barrier goes, the higher the oxytocin goes, the more comfortable it is to keep doing that. And the more we reinforce that in ourselves, the more we have a better life overall. So in general, we need to really behave. We really need to come out of our comfort zones. We really need to be doing the things that will break the barriers of emotions and fears to feel safer to reach to others. So that's our lesson for today. Please get out and start to practice. All of these podcasts are on my website at www.drsophie.com. My free downloaded iTunes phone app, Dr. Sophie on Call. Tons of information there. All the podcasts, lots of great little tidbits of information. Voicemail is always there for you, 1-855-767-4966. My book, Side by Side, The Revolutionary Mother-Daughter Program for Conflict-Free Communication. Grab a copy. Also, follow me on Twitter and Facebook for any updates and where I'll be. And as always, don't forget to sweep. But you got to keep your head up. Oh, and you can let your head down. Hey, you got to keep your head up. Oh, and you can let your head